Welcome to the Metal Miner Podcast. I'm Taras Berezowski. After the Commerce Department's Section 232 findings in early 2018, President Donald Trump decided to take action. And the rest, as Metal Miner readers have come to know, is history. With this new podcast series, we aim to take a closer look at the U.S. manufacturing landscape in our current time of trade tariffs. We'll explore how manufacturers themselves are affected by the tariffs. In other words, who are the winners and who are the losers? And we'll also look at what it all means for the maker-to-user trend that we've seen gain steam the past several years. For more on maker-to-user, download our free white paper about that topic on the site. Think farm-to-table, but for manufacturing rather than food. Part of the maker-to-user argument focuses on local sourcing. When we look at buying metal, whether it be steel or aluminum, we look at total cost of ownership because uh, material may be less expensive overseas or offshore, uh, but then you've got freight and logistics uh, built into there, and you've got to extend your supply chain by increasing inventory in some matter of fact. That's today's guest, Matt Martinson. Local sourcing is just one of many tools in his team's toolbox. Matt is Vice President of Supply Chain at JB Poindexter, one of America's largest manufacturers of very specific classes of trucks. In this episode, Matt lets the listener in on how his organization set out to mitigate risk after the tariffs struck in 2018, and what they are currently doing to steel themselves against the future. Listen in to Lisa Reisman's conversation with Matt Martinson. So Matt, tell us a little bit, if you don't mind, just the audience, a little bit about J.B. Poindexter. What do you do, the markets you serve, et cetera, if you don't mind? Yeah, sure. Uh, J.B. Poindexter is about a 40-year-old company, and we are the largest truck manufacturer in the U.S. for Class 3 through Class 7 trucks. We're in oil and gas as well as packaging, but our claim to fame is probably transportation. So we make uh, the majority of UPS, FedEx, Postal Service trucks under one platform, and we make trucks like Ryder, Penske, Hertz, and U-Haul Enterprise in another platform, as well as other other businesses that we have. But basically, we make trucks, and they are utilized uh, across North America. Terrific. Terrific. And a little bit about your role. I understand you have a supply chain function, but maybe kind of uh, walk our audience through your role and and areas of responsibility, if you don't mind. Sure. I'm the senior executive in charge of uh, supply chain, which encompasses uh, freight, transportation, uh, logistics, as well as planning and, of course, strategic sourcing. Fantastic. Great. So um, what we were interested in talking about is just understanding some of the impact uh, on tariffs on manufacturers and how manufacturers have mitigated some of that. And I know a lot of that occurred in 2018, but we'd love to just get your take on you know, how did J.B. Poindexter kind of look at tariffs in general? And maybe you can walk us through some of the things that you did as a company to mitigate some of the change, some of the, you know, some of that tariff risk, if you will. Yeah, no, I'd be glad to. So uh, first of all, uh, before I got here, we were basically buying domestic uh, materials. So steel and aluminum were bought mostly from uh, distributors. Uh, We did very little mill direct. And so uh, with my background and experience, uh, we consolidated our spend 
and we leveraged our spend and looked to go to places where we could save money. And so we went offshore, obviously, to save money. Uh, and then the tariffs hit in 2018. So part of uh, our mitigation strategy was one to alert our businesses that we were incurring additional cost. At the same time, domestic suppliers were raising their price to match uh, or to be right underneath those tariffed uh, materials. And so we passed through price increases. Uh, metal went up in 2018. Uh, so we passed through price increases to our uh, to our customers. And at that point, uh, we started looking for other opportunities. So one, we looked at alloys. Uh, is there any way that we could use a different type of alloy? Uh, and two, uh, we filed with Department of Commerce uh, for exemptions for some of our tariffs. I'll, I'll, I'll breathe there and let you... <laughs> Ask no, that's that's interesting. So you you were consistently. It sounds like you were previously uh, sourcing locally, um, and then went offshore. And then did you come back onshore, or have you maintained sort of that offshore piece of it? Well, we 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 do both. Obviously, uh, I don't think you can ever do a hundred percent offshore. Uh, for many years, extrusions have been highly tariffed uh, out of China. So we've not been in the, uh, the aluminum extrusion uh, game in China, but there are instances where we have to go domestically as well as offshore. And so we try to play a mix depending upon the type of material. I'll give you an example. So the roof coil that goes on the top of trucks uh, can't have seams in it to leak. So there's, there's three large mills in China and there's one domestic mill. That domestic mill is really sold out. So it hurts us tremendously uh, that we've got to go uh, through a, a distributor, uh, you know, where they're adding their margin. Uh, but, uh, you know, we understand that. But we have to look at the total price of the materials we bring in and we communicate that to our sales teams and the leaders of our businesses to ensure that we are not losing margin based upon how we buy. Which makes sense. How, how um, readily did your customers accept price increases or pass-throughs, if you will? And were you able to mitigate essentially all of your price risk through price adjustments with your customers? Yes and no. So let me uh, So yes, we did pass through price increases and no, they do not like them. But the way that we go to market, you can't just implement a price increase today. So you have to give them notice and then it has to be phased in depending upon the customer and the contract. And so uh, while no one likes price increases, uh, the market showed that uh, if you showed someone a, a chart of the price of metal, of hot roll, cold rolled, or, or just aluminum on, on the LME, then they could see that the prices were going up last year. And so they, although reluctantly, they did accept uh, those price increases for the most part. Got it. So you were able to mitigate it that way. So one of our um, areas of, of question, a line of questions is just around um, lean and, and lean, you know, lean organizations. And are there other initiatives that you've also put in place this past year besides price adjustments to sort of 
mitigate some of the tariff price risk? I'm just curious if there's other things that are not price oriented. Sure. Well, I'm a lean master, so very much. (laughs) Uh, So we looked at not just uh, not just taking the tariffs, but we looked at are there uh, different alloys that we could substitute? Were there different types of materials that we could substitute? Uh, So we looked at that and we we worked with some of our customers, some of our larger customers on getting those substitutions approved um, to help mitigate some of their cost. And so uh, that's an ongoing process that we're, we continue to do, not just because of the tariffs, but just because we profess to be a lean organization. So talking about product substitutes, just out of curiosity, how, how do you look at that? Do you look to say, Boy, if we switch to this alloy, it opens up these numbers of suppliers. And are those domestic suppliers or offshore suppliers? Or how do you look at, like, where are there opportunities for product substitution? Well, uh, we know the price of different materials, and some some alloys are not tariffed. So we look at, well, why would we not try and qualify this material that's the same or similar, I should say, similar alloy, uh, and we can get it tariff free. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, we have challenged our engineering and quality groups to ensure that one, uh, they are involved and we're not just putting, uh, materials on a truck that they haven't, uh, approved of and that we haven't thoroughly tested to ensure that we have the same, uh, standard of quality of the of the vehicles that we're making. So, for instance, uh, UPS is a type of vehicle that we make. We make an aluminum box truck, and some of those, uh, as well as USPS, some of those vehicles are on the road for thirty years. That's not normal. So, those vehicles have to last. Well, the boxes last a long time. It's the engines and the wheels and everything else that don't last. So, so when we mitigate, uh, when we try to mitigate those uh, tariffs, we look at uh, different alloys. Another thing we might do is uh, item substitution, whereas uh, uh, some of the roofs of some of the vehicles are aluminum. Some are translucent fiberglass that allow light to go through. So maybe we start putting more translucent roofs on. Uh, so these are some of the things we do as well as other manufacturers do in, in the U.S. truck market. Interesting. And what is the, um, I know I'm very familiar with the automotive PPAP process, but what, what is that take on the, you know, in your industry in terms of client approvals? Is that a long multi-year process? Is that something that alternative alloys can get implemented, you know, inside of a, I, I'm curious, curious, the time frame to qualify. Uh, uh, I would say on average, it takes up to nine months. It, uh, we use independent lab testing for some of the, uh, for, for some of the uh, details and, and uh, why I do have metallurgists on my staff. Uh, because metal is so important to us. Uh, we do use independent testing to speed up some of the qualifications. And um, sometimes we'll send samples to two independent labs to see if they come up with the same results uh, just for uh, safety measures. 
uh, and then we share that with engineering. And then we sometimes do a pre-build where we'll actually build out of the material. We'll get a sample coil or sample material, sample extrusions, and we'll test with that material. And then what we'll do is, uh, you know, it, it, it not only includes building out of that, but at the same time, we may have salt spray test and uh, UV test or uh, different types of tests that are required to ensure that they pass. And so I can't answer, it's, it's not the same for everything. Some is readily inter interchangeable and some takes a lot more testing and uh, approval. Uh, but typically we just don't change without the approval of the customer. Got it. And I, I think it's interesting. Product substitution has been a, well, that was sort of a real popular strategy back in 2008 when nickel prices, if you recall, were up at that $50,000 a metric ton. And we saw just a massive uh, product substitution initiative kind of, I would say industry-wide where people kind of moving away from the high nickel containing stainless steels and moving over. Right. So um, I'm going to switch. Like yeah, nickel 718, right? Exactly. But also, you know, the 304, just commercial standard, right. um, moving to the 400 series. Um, I just wanted to switch gears a little bit and just, you know, kind of pick your brain on politics and really just to understand how do you look at the current sort of macroeconomic environment from a tariff perspective and sort of what's front and center for you as you walk, you know, go into 2020. And if you also want to comment on USMCA, I don't know how exposed or not you are to Mexico and, and trade deals, you know, via the former, Na former NAFTA, but just curious, you know, your thoughts on where you go from here and kind of how you look at the market. Yeah. So, so great question, Lisa. Thanks. So one of the things we do is we have a formal meeting with my entire team once a month and we invite the business. Uh, and when I say the businesses, it's all our business platforms. And we talk about not only what is happening with our commodities and it's more than just metal, it's other commodities as well. And so we discuss those commodities what has happened and what we are forecasting. Uh, we uh, adhere to different subscriptions. Uh, we don't profess to be experts, but we take uh, those subscriptions and we take uh, uh, tidbits of that information and we share that with our businesses. So we'll do things uh, like financially hedge metals. A lot of people physically hedge metals, but we actually financially hedge based upon locking in a sales program with the customer. So we, we are flexible. Uh, we can move quickly now that we have started to qualify additional materials. Uh, so I like our chances much better uh, than we were maybe just two years ago. Uh, so I think that we uh, are doing a, a pretty decent job of keeping up and um, forecasting uh, is fairly accurate or directionally correct. That keeps us uh, in the game and competitive to our customers. That's great on the hedging question, by the way. I find not very many manufacturers in the U.S. 
hedge, whether financial or physical. So, I mean, I'm not counting service center buying forward with service centers, although that's a form of hedging. So glad to hear you guys are doing financial hedging. What's your take in terms of uh, tariffs for 2020 and what are your internal folks saying from a, like, how are you planning for it? Are you planning for tariffs to continue? Um, how do you look at the new trade deal with, you know, the, the new NAFTA, the USMCA deal? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think tariffs are here to stay. I think you will see individual companies uh, get some exemptions, but I think overall, I mean, it's important strategically for the U.S. to be strong in manufacturing metals itself. Uh, so I'm not opposed to tariffs per se. Uh, I didn't like maybe the way they were done, but but uh, and I think for the longer term, we need to have strong metals presence here in the U.S. And I think the tariffs have helped support some of those businesses tremendously. Uh, you haven't seen a lot of new manufacturing come up. There is some, but not a lot. And so I think that's been strong. As far as uh, USMCA, uh, I think you, you'll you see more, uh, more collaboration uh, and you'll see more people petition to try to be exempt from some of those tariffs. And I said a lot, so I'll, I'll take a breather again and let you ask again. Yeah, no, this is um, it, this is great. It's interesting to get your perspective. I think um, I, I've done a lot of public speaking. I always ask the question: If you asked a hundred procurement professionals if tariffs been good or bad, I'm pretty sure the answer is going to be a hundred percent they're bad. Um, so it's refreshing to hear you take sort of, you know, hey, just looking at this differently in the belief that uh, U.S. manufacturing needs to remain strong. I know from a steel perspective, there's been a lot of, um, you know, re what's the word, reinvigoration. There's a lot of new capacity coming on stream. And I think there's even quite a bit of rumor within the aluminum industry, which I won't ask you what you think of some of the aluminum unless you care to comment Um you know, the aluminum capacity coming on stream, I know it doesn't take as, it takes a lot longer uh, to get that in play. Um, but I think the question I would like to understand a little bit more is, do you think of local and offshore sourcing differently in a tariff world than you did, let's say, prior to Trump becoming president? Well, whether you like him or not, He's a businessman, and I think he's doing what's best for the aluminum and the steel industry. Uh, I would say that we do look at it differently, but when we look at buying metal, whether it be steel or aluminum, we look at total cost of ownership because uh, material may be less expensive overseas or offshore, uh, but then you've got freight and logistics uh, built into there. And you've got to extend your supply chain by increasing inventory in some matter of fact, unless those uh, low cost country or, or international suppliers will onshore your metal and warehouse in the US. And so that's what we try to do. Uh, so in essence, sometimes we get a better deal from low cost countries, not only on price, but on working capital, uh, they may inventory on shore for us. Uh, so my lead time at a domestic mill may be 45 days. My, my lead time for an LCC 
uh, mill maybe three days because they've onshored the metal and uh, warehouse it locally for us. Uh, but I would say we continue to look at every opportunity, whether domestic or offshore, to try and ensure that we're doing what's best for our company at any given point. That's terrific. Um, very interesting. Is there anything, I'm just trying to think, you know, as we're coming up to the uh, our time here, is there anything that you'd like to comment on that I haven't explicitly asked you about with regard to Again, sort of, you know, trade tariffs. I think uh, it's been really interesting to hear some of the strategies that you all have deployed. But anything that I was missing or failed to ask? No, it's a, it's. Uh, I mean, a comment would. It's it's a global market, and people are competitive. You know, many distribution centers have always bought offshore and brought it in and charged uh, prices that were comparable to uh, onshore metal. Uh, and so today we, we have to be smarter, uh, more in tune with the world market and, uh, the amount of metal that is utilized across the U S uh, you know, it's, it's important to be ahead of the game. So you look at today's newer vehicles, if we're going to, uh, electric vehicles, they, you know, they're, they're using lighter materials. They're using thinner materials, uh, gauging down. Uh, and so we're going to see things that we've never seen before because what makes change happen is prices. And so I'm kind of excited what's going to happen. It, it may not all happen in 2020, but it will happen and it will evolve and it will be once it's adapted by one or another company then it's readily accepted by many others. I mean, you think of the Ford F-150 truck was all aluminum uh, a couple of years ago, and now other people are putting heavy aluminum in there, which has created more demand, which has then raised prices or sequestered some availability. So it's a global market. We've got to stay in tune and we've got to be alert. Excellent. Matt, this has been fantastic. Uh, you brought up so many great points, and I think our listeners are going to be very interested in just hearing what you have to say. So I really want to thank you for your time this morning. Sure. Lisa, I appreciate the opportunity today, and, and we'll catch up soon. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share with a colleague or a friend. You can also follow our podcast on SoundCloud. And don't forget to check out our coverage of trade policy and what it means for metal buying organizations on our website, metalminer.com. Have a great week.